Hello and welcome into the Gotta Be Saints podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Gotta. Join me each week as I tackle life's most important question. How do I become a saint? Today's podcast is titled Memento Mori. On September 7th, 1996, my little brother Colin was born. He was my fifth sibling, so the sixth child in the Gata family. And he was born with the disease Sixus Fibrosis, which in not so scientific of terms is a buildup of mucus in your lungs, which makes it very difficult to breathe amongst other things. In the first week of December of 96, Colin became ill with a cold. And since simple respiratory illnesses can be dangerous for children with Sixus Fibrosis, he ended up going to the hospital to be monitored for pneumonia. On December 8th, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, Colin's nurse found him unresponsive in his bed, and they were unable to revive him. This tiny baby, the sixth child in a loving family, in such unfortunate circumstances, died alone. One can hope that Mama Mary held him close in those last moments. Upon learning of this tragic loss, the church community that my family was a part of, St. Francis Xavier, quickly turned over and looked for ways to support us. This started with the principal of the school, Sister Sandy, visiting our home to console Mrs. Gada. Upon meeting with her, she found out that my mom was very sick. My mom was rushed to the hospital only to discover that she was suffering from serious kidney failure. Doctors rushed to save her life, and it was only after a few days of recovering that she even learned of the tragedy that had occurred to her own son. Doctors assured the Gata family that if Rooney had not been brought into the hospital when she was, she would have died in her bed at home. Even in death, Colin was clearly helping his family. Today we talk about Memento Mori, remembering your death. And I'm fortunate enough to have with me Father Timothy Danaher. Father Danaher, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, uh, Brandon. I think it's the first time you've called me that by my last name. It's exciting. Yeah, do you prefer that or Father Tim? No, no preferences. I'm just making comments. It's good. No, <laughs> thank you. Uh, we were just together, what, last week? You were visiting Philadelphia, so. Exactly. Um, we've yeah. been crossing paths on this journey of life. Yeah, and I saw you a week before that in Steubenville, so uh, very fortunate. Yeah. But to, to give a, a little bio, and it's funny you say, that's the first time you think you've heard me say, Father Danaher, I think uh, that is the first time I said it, and it sounded weird, because I'm Yeah, it's just so you. formal, and we're so familiar. But that's I'm used fine. to calling you Father and Tim. I own almost whatever people call me, because you get such a variety, so I don't fight those fights. All right, well, I'm sure I'll call you both during this, during this talk, but... Right. Uh, to give you guys a little a little summary on Father Danaher, he was born and raised in Steubenville, Ohio. And from there, he attended Franciscan University of Steubenville. Once again, another Franciscan graduate. Uh, he studied literature and the finer things. He did not join a household. He didn't have time for that. 
and he took his bachelor's degree and worked as a pool lifeguard and a youth minister. From there, he entered the Dominicans in 2011 and was ordained a priest in 2018. He currently works at a parish in Philadelphia, and he has spent the last couple of years doing parish ministry as well as Hispanic ministries, and he considers himself hospice chaplain deluxe. So I cannot wait to hear what that means. So today we are talking, as I said, about death. Father, why are we talking about death? And uh, I think we can go right. from there. Well, to clarify first, I, I do thank you for the bio. To call me a uh, a pool lifeguard is accurate. It's just always more demeaning. You know, I went to work at a pool. It's the same thing, too. I would even say I am the volunteer chaplain um, at University of Pennsylvania Hospice, which means I don't get paid a dime, but it just happens to fall within our parish boundaries, and they refuse to hire a priest, so they said, well... Can you maybe cover? So I essentially am on call 24-7 as a hospice chaplain. This was never anticipated as a part of my priestly calling, my Dominican calling. I, I never dreamed of setting foot in a hospice until I had to do so as my job the last two years. So part of the reason why we're talking about death is because I, three or four days a week, uh, this is part of my work. So, Well, so from there... I guess the the question is how is this tied into to your story you know and um, you you mentioned that this is not something you expected but I guess how has the Lord used that to to make you better appreciate what you've been given and better appreciate life and then of course death and how you look at it yeah, it's a great lead question. It's not the lead question I expected, is, as in, um, it's more about, I was thinking we could talk, and we will later, of course, about my role, my observations, my meditations in doing the work of chaplaincy at a hospice. Well, is, and, and we can go, we can go. Hold with on. No, no, no. I like it. So how is it part of my story um, made me think about that? And two things jumped, uh, came to mind. First would be... Um, it is part of our story, right? This is the most inevitable fact that whether you're a good person or a bad person, a Catholic, Buddhist, Muslim, doesn't matter whether you're born a long time ago or just born. I mean, it's just like this is the fa this is the one guaranteed thing. Besides being alive, the opposite is that we're going to have to face this moment. So in some ways, not to be morbid, because I'm not too morbid a person, nor even in my work in hospice am I morbid, but... Death is a part of our story. We don't like to think about that part of the story. We avoid it. I have stories about people avoiding it. Um, but I think as pilgrims, let's say, I love that phrase, we are on pilgrimage towards the heavenly kingdom. Christians have that view. Do you want to sing the um, song? Um, <laughs> I am a pilgrim and a stranger traveling through this world below that's not that the one we're talking man. about <laughs> no dude bluegrass that, that was great almost every bluegrass song talks about death and it's lovely how they do it so it's like it makes it manageable to dwell on death it's like the only art genre except for this think of this too you and i were both studying at the cartauza 
the former Carthusian monastery in Austria with Franciscan University. And as you walk to the chapel, there's that fresco in the courtyard of a grim reaper with like a ribbon of time and a scythe, like basically um, with this, with this very Carthusian, you know, the Carthusians would say this to each other, memento mori, that's our title, remember your death. Josh Applegate, who was in AMDG, he actually got memento mori as a tattoo and the guy misspelled it. So he has a typo. It happens, you know, every little death, every little cross leads to the big one. I mean, it's just an imperfect journey. So I, uh, I, I think it's impossible. My first answer is to, to be, to be human and this not cross your mind. People think about it. Um, I could talk about from my own journey, um, you know, just when you're, when, when you're a kid, you watch movies and stuff, you have dreams, you have nightmares, you think about these things, you worry about it. I, I remember being in second grade, third grade, fourth grade, and, and praying for my aunt to stop smoking because I was afraid she would die. I remember, and I would do that nightly. I remember, she's still smoking and still alive. So this is Aunt Patty. Everybody knows Aunt Patty if you've ever met the Danher family. Um, she's wonderful. And she's still wonderful, still partying. Um, I remember, though, thinking that um, just because my parents were older. Now, looking back, I was eight or nine, and they were like 40, you know. But I remember, you know, my parents over the hill party, and you're a little kid, and you're thinking, you know, this isn't fun. You don't want to think about it. But I'm going to throw a twist. So not only is it a universal human thought, I have a particular fear, which wasn't funny, the fear of heaven. It was the fear of hold on, I said that wrong. Wasn't the fear of death, was the fear of heaven. I would actually have panic attacks some when I was a little kid, especially even through my teenage years, up through Franciscan University once or twice a year, physical panic attacks when I would try to conceptualize heaven. It was this promise of a life that would go on and on and on. And I tried to have analogies like a family party, et cetera. But I would say this, I was cured of these in a sense by as to, to just full-fledged borrow Protestant language when I met Jesus Christ, right? When, when, when that became real for me is that deepening of baptismal grace. When I was in Gaming, Austria of that time again, I would say I had a series of experiences in class, the theology of Christ with Robert Cassidy and also with friends where I felt like Christ was real living present. And then I had no more fear of death. I had no more fear of deep questions. I had no more fear of political global instability just because I had met the one personally who was in charge and who had everything in his hands. And I still, I, I have not since that semester um, had a panic attack. I have not feared heaven because I've realized it's a place where he's there. It's personal. We will be there. But quite literally, I feared even the good promise after death. And I wasn't planning on sharing that, but you asked the questions. And here Don't. we are. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, I think that goes though with my next question, um, which is more of a, uh, I guess, not so much your personal story, but just a question in general is, you know, as Catholics, how are we supposed to, to view death? You talk about your own experience, which I think is probably similar to a lot of people's. I remember similarly, you know, when my dad would leave the house and it'd be seven o'clock and he's not home on a Tuesday night and you know not thinking much of it but then it gets to eight o'clock and I start to worry a little bit and everything that could possibly happen that could have gone wrong I've thought of 
I'm, you know, I'm sitting there waiting up for him. And every time he came home, but it was still this fear, this maybe slightly irrational fear that I had that something happened to him, even though he was just at work and he worked far away. So it was going to take him some time to get home. But some of it's not irrational. Like I was thinking of this, where does this come from? Some of it comes from the community. Just going to school, you know of at least like one or two people in your school who lost their parents or their parents are divorced or something else with illness happened. Like just to be in community, we hear these things even as children. Yep. I mean, well, the story I shared, you know, losing my little brother. Now, to me, I was three years old. So it's a lot different how it affected me but, you know, I, I experienced it without necessarily understanding it growing up, how it affected my parents, my mom especially, and then, of course, even my older siblings, you know, to deal with that in a way that, you know, maybe doesn't make sense to a three-year-old or doesn't affect a three-year-old in the same way. But um, still, you see it, you know, and, and it does, you know, the, the phrase you as a parent never want to be the one bearing your child. Right. And yet that was the experience my parents had, but you're right. Yeah. The the students that you're in grade school with who lost a mom or a dad, you know, it's one of those things that it's just uh, unimaginable. Yeah. And so to that question though, how are, how is it as a Catholic, how do we handle death? How do we view death? in a different lens than maybe our Protestant brothers and sisters, but then even people who uh, aren't Christian and maybe are even agnostic or, or atheist. So I have a variety of answers and I'll just kind of list them briefly instead of picking one. Cause I, I think um, there's, I mean, the, the one answer is always going to be Christ. And that's not some grade school trick that kids learn. It's just like the answer is always Jesus. It's like, <laughs> no, it's true is that, Death is forever changed by Christ. Mm. Um, but it takes actually going through the experience. We can talk about it, but that doesn't actually accomplish. I mean, he actually died. He was actually risen. People need themselves to actually die, to actually enter new life. And so we're not spared the literal side of that. Um, so I, I give a variety of answers not to avoid Christ, um, Death has lost its sting. If, if, imagine if we didn't have him, for instance. Um, we would, it would still be a major question of what exactly happens, and, and it would be wide open for any theories. Whereas the case is closed, is that what awaits on the other side is life, and it is eternal life, and the one who welcomes us there is Christ Jesus. And so the, what I want to say now is in a variety of statements is the human experience of us thinking about an approaching death versus the real thing. Cause the real thing is just Jesus. He is the way, the truth and the life. And he's right on the other side. So that's been made clear by his rising from the dead. Um, what about like us looking at death ahead of time? And I would say a couple variety of things in some ways we're similar to, um, all humans in that I think of solidarity, you know, people really do bond when they've gone through, when they've gone through loss, not even together. If, if, if two people discover that each one has had a loss in the family, there's a, there's a bond there. And I've seen that um, countless times. That has to be said. Another thing that has to be said is a growing maturity. I remember when my grandfather died, that was the first funeral I had been to. Um, 
It was way out in Illinois. So we drove about 12 hours. It was out at the family farm where the burial was. It was just, you know, you're, you're just hanging around with your 12 other guy cousins to avoid the reality because you're only 10. Um, and it's strange. It's, it's, it's depressing even in the, even in the atmosphere. It's just the flowers all mixed together and smell bad. They still do. It's, you don't want to look at a person laid out in a coffin. You see your parents cry. I mean, there's just like a lot as a kid where you're like, this is deeply uncomfortable. And I made it through, but like with the cousins horsing around. So it's like, you had to do that, you know? Um, I think there's a maturity though, where we're able to, as we mature in life and face life, we also mature in facing death. Um, I know a man here, his name is Tim, like myself in Philadelphia. He lost his wife. They had three daughters in high school. I mean, just, a, the timing was tragic, you know, and Tim really, um, I mean, who, what man is is like capable of like, there's no textbook for this. You know, his brother was supportive, friends were supportive, but who's going to step in and be, you're now a widower with three daughters. And he was heroic in the sense that he organized the funeral. He kept his composure. He had done this already for both of his parents previously. But I would say that here's a man who was just, was still struck and grieving and still is a year later, almost a year later. I um, mean, we still check in all the time, but here's somebody too, who, who approached it with sort of maturity and dignity that he, he knew this happened. And yeah, I, I think um, there is a maturing process in facing death. Um, I've seen some people who are just wrecked and confused by it in hospice and just say, how can this be happening to my loved one? Or people, how can this be happening to me? And you get wild variety, though, psychologically, even among Catholics. I visit Catholics at hospice. That's it. Some Catholics um, really bank on the sacraments. We're going to come back to that, too. And they really just want a priest to pray with them. Others, um, I think it's sad to say that many of our brothers and sisters um, are distracted in regular daily life and then they get sick and then they stay distracted until the day that I die. I've seen way too many people um, die watching CNN, die watching Fox News. It's just alarming to me. I mean, I've, I, I've had back-to-back -back patients next door where, where one person is, is having this lifelong confession, You're letting all their sins out, confessing things they've never confessed, and they receive the sacraments, you go next door to the next Catholic on the list and the woman is ordering a pizza and she's like, I'm ordering a pizza. I'm okay. I don't need you. And it's like, Lord have mercy because, and I'm talking about Catholics. So I want to talk about the ideal Catholic view of what we should, we should face death with. But I'm, I'm also talking about just our Catholic brothers and sisters who um, I see both things. Some people, death really makes them mature and they grow up a lot because of grieving. Other people too, however, um, just never change their routines. And I think that needs to be said. Some people don't change their routines and then they die. And maybe, I mean, my most disappointing kinds of confessions are not real serious, heavy, gnarly sins. The worst confessions are the one when you get in there and it's just sort of like, you know, I just, um, could have been better to my family and uh, 
you know, and, and, uh, I think that's all it's like, it's like, it's been 40 years, bro. I mean, I told you, Philly <laughs> to push people a little bit. Philly's amazing. It was one guy. I actually, we, we had confession. We had anointing. There's the three parts of the sacraments. I mean, the key things for Chris Catholic is I'll give you this and with this story and I'll finish with this question. The key for death that makes us different from everyone else, Christian brothers and sisters, anyone else who believes anything, who cares, is the sacraments. I mean, we have sacraments for this moment. And I want to read before we, we go the prayers of the last rites. They're brief. They're beautiful. I want to describe them because most people have no idea what those prayers are. The church saved some of the most gorgeous prayers ever for that last, that last prayer service for you, that last sacrament, that rite, we call it. Um, but last rites normally involves a person's ideally still being conscious. It involves three sacraments. It involves confession, then anointing of the sick for spiritual strength, and then uh, receiving the Eucharist as viaticum, food for the journey. Um, but I, I had that opportunity with this guy. We, I caught him while he was conscious, and we had confession, and then we had um, anointing. And then I said, would you like to receive the Eucharist in classic Philly fashion? He's like, he's like, I'm good father. You've done a good job. Thank you. You know, I'm gonna be okay. I'm like, I had to level with him and say, listen, um, this is going to be the last time anybody ever offers this to you. The Eucharist is not in heaven. I mean, you, you'll find Christ in heaven, but it's, it's the most precious thing we have. I said, I'm the last priest you're going to see. You're not going to get an offer. He goes, Oh yeah. Okay. Sure. Let's do the Eucharist. It's like, okay. <laughs> have to like force you into it. But it's, it's to the point where um, Catholics, the ideal, I'm, I'm, I'm given the, the field of different people across the charts, but, but the ideal is to, when you're still conscious, to receive the sacraments, confession of forgiveness of sins, then anointing for spiritual strength, and then the Eucharist. Because there is no better send-off. There is no better food for the journey, so to speak. There's no better preparation for the sacraments are for death. They're for healing the soul, crossing over to death. And there's just name another religion that is anything like that. People can pray. I remember too, I was called into the hospice once and they had had another chaplain in the before Protestant chaplain with all due respect, a very good person, but the people were Catholic and they couldn't get a hold of the priest. And this chaplain came in and prayed the our father with them. And they just thought, um, you know, just like, all right, well, where's the priest at, you know, and our father's not enough. Um, and that, I would just say that in a key word, how do we face death? Sacraments. But all modes of psychology. Oh, I can go into all kinds of stuff. I'll give you one mode of family psychology. People don't want to scare somebody. This is very common, scarily so. They don't want to let the person like be alarmed if you bring in a priest. And so they'll wait until they're unconscious and they try and catch them with the anointing. It's like, listen, you can anoint a person to give them the spiritual strength and possible forgiveness of sins. But confession is so much more guaranteed. Like, please call me while you're conscious. If I'm, if I'm dying, it's like, I, I mean, I mean, it's a no brainer. You know, I want confession first things first. That's the first thing I want for my mom, before my dad, before my friends, I want confession. I'm dying. You know, you do that once, right? You do that once and your soul is, 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 is looked at for what it is. It's like, I mean, take, take a spiritual shower golly I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm alarmed by the by the by the unconscious technique how widespread that is it's just like the, the people of god man i'm like 
I, I try to educate as much as possible, but last rites doesn't mean catch him at the very end, last breath, no way. Well, but doesn't that just speak to the lack of education that so many of our brothers and sisters have? Because you've got the man who you're there at his bedside and you say, do you want to receive the Eucharist? And there's a mentality of, I'm good. Right. And you and I both know you know, I've taken communion to the homebound as an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. It does not take long. And I know I'm sure that you can, it can be a very quick process for that. And yet there's this mentality. I don't know, maybe he thinks he's got to go through the whole mass. But it, but, it, but it raises the question, too, of how God works. God may sometimes work by inspiring real devotion in somebody. God may also work through a badgering priest saying, you know, you sure? Really? But I mean, God works in different ways too. I've, I've also had seen many people have quote unquote deathbed reversions to the faith, many people in a dramatic way. And I don't say dramatic things. I don't come in, fill in the room, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. I mean, I just simply show up as a priest and they sit down and they have three or four days left in life. And that's not depressing from the priest's perspective. It's like you feel so privileged. Like you get to have a life conversation with somebody that's that's making that journey in three days. Mm. It's amazing when you go walk away. And it's just the simple things of you ask them what they're scared about. They have their questions. I a lot of times do the Pascal's wager thing. You know, Pascal's wager is just if if you're a gambling man and it's just like there's either eternal life or nothing at all. So like, we'll bet on eternal life. You know, it's it's the obvious bet. And just I've just found that just listening to somebody for 10 minutes, encouraging them, speaking of heaven, I mean, at that point, there are a number of people where they come right back to the faith. They confess full confessions. They cry when they receive the Eucharist. I swear to you, I've seen people whose lives have been a mess. And in 10 minutes, just because death is that moment where if you say the simple things, the true things, I mean, there's a number of people where they come right on back. It's beautiful to see. I'm like, I marvel at it. Well, and I think too, it speaks to, was it today's uh, gospel or yesterday's talking about, uh, you know, those invited and the reality though is few are chosen. And you, you know, you talk about how some of these people, you know, have never even given it much thought until that moment. God, in the end is going to do whatever he can to get your soul there. Right. Even if you spent your whole life forfeiting what he's given you, even in, he's so good. Even in that moment, he's saying, I'm literally placing in this situation, a priest before you who can right. forgive you for your sins, who is going to allow you to receive the sacraments. And of course you're still accountable for all those actions that you've, the ways you failed, but you can make it to heaven. And, you know, the, the few are chosen, you know, God ordains, you know, each one of us to a certain call, but reality is a lot of us might be getting in uh, by the seat of our pants and not to, you know, you and I, of course, are more culpable because we know, but and and not just not just those who whether they've practiced like let's think of like you know we who die but let's talk about the minister as well um, 
you know, one of the most unspoken things that no one ever talks about is that a lot of times during the week, regular priests, diocesan priests, religious priests are in hospitals fairly frequently. That's limited some because of COVID. Um, but priests are constantly in hospitals and it's never mentioned and they get no credit. But it's amazing. I mean, whenever I look at the church and my own ministry, my own meditation, we, we could always be, we could always be more fruitful. We could always be better. Okay. There's, there's room for improvement no doubt um but i'm also really edified if there's one sort of priestly behavior it's not always every priest homily it's not always every priest advice but priests are good at hospital coverage frankly they do a lot of that behind the scenes all over the world nobody talks about it but it's a beautiful kind of hidden ministry of theirs in the church oh yeah no i think you're alan isn't that half of the role of a priest is is never seen and it's a it's right. a beautiful thing i mean it just is a reminder to all of us to and even by one another i mean when priests come together for dinner they say so what did you do and you had like seven situations most of which you want to keep mostly private and you're just thinking yeah it was a good day i mean priestly sharing between close friends for sure but among priests working together at a parish it's also there's this hiddenness from each other even in religious life, because of the nature of your work. It's, it's kind of, you kind of have to respect privacy. I mean, I know it's the exact opposite of the news. I remember um, there was a real tragic situation two years ago of a woman, her two-year-old in a car accident had died in this really gruesome way. And so I was ministering to both, I did help to do the funeral for this two-year-old and for, this one was in, it was in a Hispanic community. Uh, here in Philadelphia. And it's just like, it, it just struck me as that anything that's like raw and crazy and really bad news. So that was the only hospital visit I've ever done that made it on the news. It was on TV. Whereas like that would be, that was the last thing I would ever instinctually do, come home to the community and say, oh, you're not going to believe like this gruesome. It's just, it demanded silence. It demanded reverence. There's something about ministry especially even in the worst cases, which you're really working to heal, which just like the last thing you'd ever do is publish that, even to the people you live with. Just like mm. revere it and pray with it and work with it and let your right hand not know what your left is doing for Christ's sake, really, for Christ's sake. It's like, let him work and you don't have to just talk, talk, talk. The more yeah. serious work should be kept quiet. And most of it is, sadly. And most of the hidden joys. I mean, I, I can't share a single name of a person I've met in the hospital by HIPAA. Properly so it's federal law. But it's like, I have a list of nicknames. I have at least three, 400 nicknames just to help me remember those people. And that brings up the conversations we had. That brings up the changes. I mean, it's, it's serious. But, I mean, people on the deathbed, too, sometimes it's hilarious. I mean, people are... Uh, people are strong and courageous and brave. And I mean, it's all kinds of moments. I look at all the people I've gotten to like see pass over. It's everything from a guy that demanded to be buried in his backyard, even against his wife's protest. She's like, that's insane. He goes, it's not insane. It's my land. You know, I mean, this is a very holy guy, very practicing Catholic, by the way. I don't know what they ended up doing, you know, that compared to, I remember, uh, being at the hospice bed of a, of a one-year-old was very complicated. And as tragic as it is for a one-year-old to be passing away and, 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 and gasping for breath, um, you can, in those exceptional cases, confirm a one-year-old and even give the tiniest crumb of the host for communion. 
I mean, how gorgeous is that? to give a one-year-old a crumb of Christ. I mean, it's just, yeah. and then you jump to the next people who are, you get these these women on their deathbed, these older women who are just these mystics. And, but it's not meditating was on the word of God, it's on family and life. And I just, sometimes I'm at school, I just listen for, I don't know, two hours. I'm just like, you want sacraments maybe? You know, but they've been recently. It's. It's incredible how people are still themselves before death. It doesn't cripple you. That's the comforting thing. There's a weakness. People slow down. They start to lose consciousness. They start to have trouble breathing. Um, but there, but there, but there's, there's, there's just this. You, you get this sense of it's, it's doable. It's another human thing. Um, it's not this scary thing that just ruins your life. It's, it's still you taking these steps in your life, your final steps. I've, I've just been really encouraged by how people stay themselves until the very end. 